And uh, to think that we are partakers of that is, uh, is a tremendous blessing that comes with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so last week um, we considered, it was really introductory in the sense that I sought to, uh, to outline, just to refresh ourselves, to outline the controversy or some of the controversy because it's pretty um, exhaustive really, but some of the controversy and confusion that surrounds the doctrine of holiness in the word of God and how it's applied, what is holiness and how it is achieved in the Christian life and and the whole issue of holiness in Christ and the uh, debate that rages around self-effort or uh, an act of the will. And I shared testimony, you may recall, because the, the issue of holiness really goes to the centre of my walk. It uh, really was the defining factor that forced me to have to come into a crisis of conscience in where I was ministering and which I had to step down uh, based upon this particular issue. And it's been 11 years and I never really shared it in detail. I shared some of it last week where uh, we talked about some of the outward forms of uh, our standards or, or rules that can be applied to the whole where that becomes a subtle form of legalism. And so, um, again, noting the fact that when we talk about holiness, everyone that is pursuing it in that sense is serious about it. And we must be serious in our approach to holiness. We must be serious in seeking God's word to understand what it is that it teaches us and what it is that it says. And so, as I said and established last week, and we'll get into the details of these things further on, but I, uh, as I established, and uh, I think it was recorded and it was, it's on the feed there if, you, if anyone wanted to listen to it. I know some people did. But um, the, 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 the issue of self-works is clearly revealed to us in the Bible. It, the emphasis is clearly there in Scripture, and it's throughout the whole pages of the Bible. And so, um, uh, in, in establishing that, and we'll see it further, but what is of most importance when we talk about or even touch upon that aspect we must always backtrack and establish the principles, the foundation of holiness, because if we don't grasp the foundation, if we don't understand the root of holiness, then anything that becomes out of that will be tainted uh, and corrupted and, uh, and will ultimately not be born of the Word, not be born of the Spirit, but will be an act of self-effort that won't be rooted in the truth and empowered by the Spirit of God as we see in Scripture, and that is dangerous as we established. And so again, I'm just saying these things to reiterate, probably jog your mind in a couple of things that we spoke about. So a correct understanding is important because the truth of the matter is that the power for holiness and to live a holy life does not reside in the power of the will. Simply, Scripture is clear on this, especially uh, uh, Romans, where it establishes these truths. And so the Bible knows no such thing of that, where the world preaches that message. But in the church and in Christ, that is not the fact. The yes, there's a place for the will, and we'll establish that as we go along, but there's no power in the will. It's contrary, in fact, and, and, and it has all its inherent dangers. Nor is there uh, the need to regulate and 
establish rules of righteousness to try and in order to encourage or establish the practice of righteousness. That's not how it works. But yet, again, in holiness camps, these are some of the things that you observe over, over, uh, over the years and uh, centuries, really, when you look at, um, at God's word. And so if we're going to understand holiness this morning, then we have to understand its origin. We have to understand its origin. Why does the word exist in the first place? What does it mean? Because we cannot talk about the holiness of the child of God without first addressing the holiness of God. Because that is the foundation. And so we cannot begin to even move forward in our study, in our series about holiness as it applies to the child of God. I only touched upon these things last week to kind of prepare us and lay that foundation. But nevertheless, we have to go back to the, to the origin of the word holiness and understand it in its relationship to God. First and foremost, before we consider it in relation to ourselves. And so I was thinking of this, and uh, uh, how, how would you illustrate the holiness of God? And uh, think with me of the sun for a moment. The sun is a ball of fire. And if we were to <coughs> get too close to the sun, what would happen? We'd get sizzled up, right? Climate change. <laughs> the climate would change dramatically, I tell you. <laughs> but nevertheless, uh, we, we see that the sun, when we look at it in, in nature, just in comparison to the universe and the solar system and the planets, the sun is unique, isn't it? Being one of the stars. And so its position and its purpose and all of those things. And so when you look at the sun, what you see is that there is a uniqueness the sun, you could say, is holy in a sense, in that it is unique, in that it is powerful, in that it is separate. And if we were to get close to it, we would just be zapped and burnt up and disintegrate. And really, that, in an essence, is a picture of the holiness of God. Because if we were to come into contact with the holiness of God this morning in our condition that we are, we too would disintegrate. The Bible says that our God is a consuming fire. And the reason why that emphasis is made is based upon the holiness of God. Because God cannot have the unpure, impure and the unclean and the sinfulness of, uh, of man in his presence. It's simple as that. And so when we see the sun, we see two aspects that are illustrated. We see the holiness of God and we see the sinfulness of man. That man is corruptible, that man is infallible, that as the scripture teaches us, man has a sinful nature. And that is at, uh, at odds with the holiness of God. And so what we want to consider this morning is the holiness of God and the sinfulness of men. Because right there is the problem. Right there is the foundation of the issues that are at hand. 
And when we talk about God, we're talking about a holy God. In 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 2, the Bible says, No one is holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. None besides you. No one is holy like the Lord. The holiness of God is unique. And it's related to himself. And it, it's illustrated in the text that we want to look at in Isaiah chapter 6. Turn with me. I know it's a familiar portion of scripture for many. The prophet Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah's experience teaches us and reveals to us a number of things and highlight in the text this morning. But let's read from verse number 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the trains, a train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one cried to another, one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out. And the house was filled with smoke. So I said, this is Isaiah, so I said, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal which we had taken from the tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, he has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin is purged. Now, like I said, this scripture this morning illustrates for us the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man. And really, this is the theme throughout the whole scripture when you consider it in terms of the creation, the fall, and the plan and purpose of God in redemption and Christ and, and even now the day in which we live and that which is to come. It's all about the re-establishing of God's, God's power and God's majesty and the holiness of God being re-established on the earth. Because when you think about it, that's how it was in the beginning, wasn't it? When you look back and you understand the scripture, God made things perfect. He made man perfect in his image. We were untainted. We were partakers of the holiness of God. So much so that God could walk in the mid, in, come into the midst of the garden and he would fellowship and he would talk and he would walk with uh, Adam and with Eve. And they shared in this intimacy and the basis of that intimacy that they in he, being having made, being have made in his image, they were partakers of the holiness of God. And that is a beautiful thing, that be, to think that they participated in the holiness of God by virtue of God's creation. When he breathed into them the breath of life, and they become a living being. 
But we know the story and the sad story it is in which uh, uh, Adam and Eve sin and the the fall as we know it and uh, the whole issues that surrounded that, that men die spiritually and ultimately physically and sin enters the world, death enters the world and the whole state of things gets totally changed and the holiness of God is affected. And more than that, Affected in the sense in that it's relationship to men because man now has not and is not a partaker of that holiness. Sin has now corrupted the being and the whole. And so, so now we're dealing with a dynamic of the holiness of God which has not changed or shifted but man has changed fundamentally and therefore we have the sinfulness of men. God remains holy but man becomes unholy. And Isaiah puts it in words that uh, uh, help us to understand when he says, when Isaiah sees the holiness of God, when he sees the high and holy one lifted up on his throne and the glory of God manifested and the, the seraphim crying out to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And then Isaiah, and observing this, the Bible says, he says, woe is me for I am undone. And he uses a phrase, I am unclean. Now think about that because that is really the reality of things this morning. You see, we have to come into the understanding of the holiness of God and the sinfulness of men. And that God is not like us. Now, in the, in the fact that he is separate, this is what the holy emphasis of the word holy teaches us. This is what it implies to us, that he is separate. And I found this definition where it says, the holiness of God refers to the unparalleled majesty, unparalleled majesty of his incomparable being, because there's no one like him, no one. And he's blameless, faultless, unblemished, moral purity. That's why Isaiah said, I'm undone, I'm unclean. God is holy and I am not. He's separate to you and I. Isaiah says, woe, woe is me. Woe. Can you sense the, the despair, the self-despair? Woe is me. And this is not some self-pity trip. This is a revelation of the holiness of God and his reaction to it. You know, think about John and Peter and, and, uh, at the Last Supper and they're there with Jesus on his side and they're both, you know, uh, leaning on his breast and there's an intimacy that they're sharing. But when John sees him in his glory, in Revelation chapter 1, he falls down as one dead. Because when you come into contact with the holiness of God, we don't really fully grasp the holiness of God, church. We don't. The scripture gives us so much pictures, to, and we're going to touch upon some of this this morning. But Isaiah says, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips. And this is a man that was a prophet. 
You read in the first five chapters, he's already being ordained as a prophet to the nations. He's already speaking on behalf of the Lord and he's bringing out and declaring through his lips the judgment of God and the sinfulness of the nation of Israel. But then when he sees the Lord, he sees not those sin around him, although he refers to it, he sees himself. And in seeing himself, we see his response. And that's the truth. When we see, when we fully, or when we get a grasp or a glimpse even of the holiness of God, this is the natural response for any of us. And if it's not, then something's wrong. If it's not, then something is missing. And we need a, a good dose and zap of the fear of God, I think, in our lives. Now think about this uncleanness, because this is something that's revealed to us in Scripture. In fact, in the New Testament, Paul will write in the book of Romans to try and illustrate it. And we know the Bible says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned. And then when you see the description that's given to us in Romans 3, uh, in, and when Paul uh, quotes there and he says in verse 10, As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There's none who seeks after God. They've all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips. Oh, it's there. There's those lips. Whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And this is Paul's summary as inspired by the Spirit of God to illustrate and paint a picture of the human heart. And the Bible says that the heart of man is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Jeremiah 17, 9, who can know it? I, the Lord, know it. And when we get a glimpse of the holiness of God and we see the depths of our own uncleanness and impurity, <clears throat> this is the response, woe is me. There can be no other. And so the picture of God's holiness and man's sinfulness is reflected throughout the Bible. Right throughout the scriptures. I mean, when you consider this in the context that we're speaking about it, you understand this morning the, why the Bible speaks about hell. I mean, hell was made for the devil and his angels. But man in his corrupted state and sinful state, he cannot, sin cannot be in the presence of God and man uh, uh, who is not uh, righteous before God cannot be in the presence of God, dwell in the presence of God and the scripture, scripture is clear. Those names are not found in the book of life will be cast into the lake of fire. I mean, this is how serious it is. We're talking life and death. We're talking about eternal uh, salvation or eternal damnation. And hell is a real place and people are going to be there for eternity. And the concept of that, because you know what hell testifies to? The holiness of God. The holiness of God. And so the impure coming into contact with God is dangerous this morning. 
And uh, we see it illustrated, obviously, in our text. We see it illustrated in the illustration I gave to you earlier about the sun. And I just want to point out a couple of other things in the scriptures just to get a picture. Because you remember now Moses when he saw he his, uh, his burning bush experience and he saw the fire that burned and he came to the smoke and he said, you know what, time has come, I'm going to go up there and have a look at it. Gaze upon it. And he approaches and this is God's presence and he comes into that place. And you know what God says to him? God says, stop where you are. Don't come any closer. <laughs> Think about it. Why would God say that? Because Moses, he says to Moses, take your sandals off your feet for the place where you stand is holy ground. And so Moses removes his sandals and comes into the presence of God in contact with the holiness of God. And the, the, the removal of those sandals is a removal of the unclean. It's a symbolic that we cannot stand or come into the presence of God based upon our current condition and in our own effort and in our own righteousness. None of these things qualify us to stand in his presence. And so he says to Moses, remove those sandals off your feet. For that place that you cannot, he says, don't come any closer. You can read it. He says, don't come any closer until you do this. Because had he, well, he might have found himself consumed by that fire. And I have no doubt that he would have, according to what we see in the scripture. You see, we see the whole issue of the tabernacle and the temple in the Old Testament. Do you know what it all teaches us? Okay, it teaches us about the sinfulness of men, I get it. But you know, the greater truth is that it teaches us about the holiness of God. He's separate. And so, you know, so God has chosen for himself a nation. He set aside a people, Israel. And so through Moses now, he has given him instructions in Exodus of how to build this tabernacle, which later became the temple uh, in the kings, through the kings. And in light of that, you have this structure and you have the, uh, the, the outer court, the holy, uh, holy place and the holy of holies. And that holy of holies, you had there the, mercy, uh, the, the Ark of the Covenant and you had the mercy seat. And the Bible says only once a year the high priest could go into that place on the Day of Atonement. And without the shedding of blood, he could not go in. Because there had to be uh, atonement made for sin. Because we're dealing with the sinfulness of men and the holiness of God. And to come into the Holy of Holies without blood, without atonement for sin, without cleansing, was deadly and dangerous. And you would be zapped in the, by the holiness of God. I mean, that's a scary thought, but that's the reality. And so the, Is the Israelites, the Jews understood through the way God had uh, orchestrated these things. They clearly understood the holiness of God in comparison to the sinfulness of man and the need for blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. And so this is the whole Jewish concept, is that God is holy. And you see this over and over again in the Bible. We already touched upon the Garden of Eden, but you know that when uh, Adam and Eve sinned and God brought about that judgment, he removed them 
out of the garden. And you know what he set up? He set up the, the cherubim and the flaming sword that they had. And they had those flaming swords and they guarded the entrance to the garden. That if anyone wanted to go and partake of the tree of life or, or, or step into that holy place, they would be zapped in the moment they would try and go in. This was before the fall, before the flood, sorry, before the flood. This, is, this existed for some period of time. We sometimes don't you know, reflect upon that. But this was present in the, in the beginning of time. The people knew, you, that's, that's the garden. And it's guarded by the cherubim with the flaming swords. You can't go in there. You can attempt to, but you'll be consumed in a moment of time. Because God is holy and men is not. Do you remember reading in the Bible the story of Aaron's sons? And the Bible talks about them, Nadab and Habihu. And in the book of Leviticus, in chapter 10, you find this account. And the fact of the matter is, is God has spoken to Moses. He's set up the tabernacle. He's given the pattern and the guidelines and the rules that are to be followed, that are to be obeyed. And in doing so, Aaron, who was the priest in the first instance, here, he's instructed by Moses as according to the pattern. And these are meticulous. These have to be adhered to. To go contrary to this would be dangerous. And so here it is. You know the story. So here he's, uh, he has four, four, four boys, four sons. And two of them, the Bible says, they offered profane fire before the Lord. And they came in the presence of God in a manner that God had not prescribed. They offered profane fire before the Lord, not according to the pattern that God had ordained. Because you just can't come to God on your terms when you want how you want. It has to be according to God's way. And so here it is, they made an abuse of that. And in doing so, the Bible says that fire came out and consumed them. And again, they were zapped and they fell down dead. Again, this is coming into contact with the holiness of God, the sinfulness of men. And you can see here the emphasis that is being made in Scripture. And God even says uh, um, in Leviticus chapter 10, he speaks because Moses, I mean, Aaron is distressed for obvious reasons. And Moses is saying, well, well Lord, uh, what's the deal? And God says, this is it. For those that come near me, that those, to those that who will approach me, I must be regarded as holy. That's the truth that I want be to be burned into the minds and the hearts of the Israelites. That if you're going to come into my presence, then you must understand I must be regarded as holy. Because I am a holy God. And that's why in the text it says that he is the high. Uh, it says that he's the, he's, his throne is sitting high and lifted up. In fact, in Isaiah 57, verse 15, the Bible says, For thus says the high and lofty one. There's only one that can, uh, those words attributed to, and that's God, who inhabits eternity 
whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place. That's who God is. And you know, men, we just, mankind just doesn't get it. In fact, when we see, you know, the, uh, this Mardi Gras nonsense in Sydney and, and how they take the, the, ra- the colours of the rainbow and they call it a pride march, you know who they're talking to. You know who they're, 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 they're raising their fist at? A holy God. And God is not mocked. And yet we see this manifestation of the sinfulness of man now, and not, not in, a, uh, in, a, in, a, in a miscalculated way, but now in an arrogance and pride and, and uh, in their own loftiness, they think that they can flaunt themselves uh, in these rainbow colours because, you know, the rainbow being reflective of um, the covenant there with Noah where God said, because he destroyed the whole people for their wickedness, and he said, I'll never again destroy the earth by flood. And so they wave this according to the covenant of God. But you see, they have no idea what they're dealing with in this instance. In fact, in Psalm verse 50, verse 21, God says, These things you have done, speaking to Israel, and I kept silent. You thought that I was altogether like you. That's how stupid we are. That somehow we make God in our own image. That we think that he's altogether like me. That he kind of, you know, he's moved, you know, that's the, how the world thinks as well. In their, uh, somehow in their false love and all their false emotions and their corruption of their hearts. That they somehow think that they're right, that God is like them. No, he's not. Although we as Christians even can have a misunderstanding of God and have God uh, perceive God in such a way that he's not. Because God is not like us. And though God may keep silent on some of these issues, he is not like what we see, the things that we see around us. He is holy. And men will one day understand the holiness of God. Because either the, Jesus will return when God pours out we know that the, the tribulation is coming, the wrath of God is coming upon the earth and uh, it's uh, uh, at the doorstep. The Bible says that uh, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. They're going to come into contact. Every man that has ever been, every woman that has ever been born will come into contact with the holiness of God. And you know what they're going to do? They're going to bow and they're going to yield and they're going to surrender and be humbled before God, and there are those who will not inherit the kingdom of God. God is holy. And so, what we find in Isaiah's experience this morning in chapter 6 reveals something wonderful, and I just want to highlight it because it's in the text, but we're going to examine it further in this, in, in, uh, probably next week. But you see, man can't do anything, but God can. When we talk about holiness, God's holiness, we sang it in the song, Rock of Ages, Cleft for Me. There's nothing that we can do of ourselves. It's God that has, must act on our behalf. 
And so here's Isaiah. He's, he's saying, woe is me, for I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And then something unique takes place. And uh, the seraphim, he says, the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal, which he'd taken with the tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth with it, and he said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is purged. And what we see here, and what I want us just to highlight out of this, and keep it in our minds, is that not only does it say that Isaiah's iniquity is taken away and his sin is purged, but how is that accomplished? How is it accomplished? Well, they get the coal, and he touches the lips of Isaiah, and the holiness of God is transferred to Isaiah. He is purged of his sin. You see, when, uh, when, when God comes into the contact with the unclean here, being Isaiah, uh, the, 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 that impurity does not affect the purity of God and the holiness of God. But we see a transaction, we see a transference here in this instance where now the holiness of God is being transferred or imputed, we'll see these things in the gospel, to Isaiah, which really in essence captures for us the whole gospel message that, uh, is, that it contains when it talks about Christ and his sacrificial death. A transference of the holiness of God. And so we'll consider this in more detail as we look at the doctrine of holiness in the New Testament. But I want to look further at some other pictures in the scripture in relation specifically to the nation of Israel. You know, God took a side after, uh, and uh, it, he called out Abraham and he said to Abraham that he would make of him a nation. And there's a multiple dimensions to all of that. But you see, Israel was set aside as a nation. And God chose for himself a people. And the emphasis here again is that they were to be a holy people separated to God. Let me read to you a few scriptures. In Exodus 19, verse 5, he's speaking through Moses to the people, having taken them out of Egypt now. And he says, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. This is the nation of Israel. This is how God is defining them and identifying with them. In Leviticus chapter 20, verse 26 God says, and you shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy and have separated you from the people, have separated you from the people, that you should be mine. So God's taking them into a possession of himself as a nation. He's entered into covenant and he's called them to be a holy nation and he's told them that they are to be holy because he is holy. You see, Israel was holy as a nation by way of covenant relationship with God and they were holy members of a, uh, of a community that was in covenant with God and they were expected to conduct themselves and obey and adhere uh, to uh, the, the instructions that were found in God's word to Moses in the Torah. 
They were commanded to reflect that. Look, let's read Leviticus 11, verse 44. For I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore consecrate yourselves. You shall be holy, for I am holy. Neither shall you defile yourselves with any creeping thing that creeps on the earth. For I am the Lord who brings you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. Now he's telling them, the emphasis here is their conduct, right? We were talking about Isaiah there and a purging and an impartation, a transference. But when you look at, uh, uh, now that we're considering with Israel as a nation, we're seeing now the practical manifestation of holiness, that the, how they were to conduct themselves, how they were to live distinctly different from the nations that were around them, that they were a holy people in covenant with God. So therefore, because God's holy, they're holy, they must be holy. They must live holy. And that's what you read when you read the book of Leviticus and other uh, uh, those New, uh, Old Testament books in the Torah. You see that emphasis, don't you? Now, before we draw an incorrect conclusion, I want to make a point and I want to try and bring some context to this. Because when we just, if, we, if we take the issues that we see there in the Old Testament, Leviticus, and the points that I've just made, if we just look at them in and of themselves without contextualizing them with the whole, we can be, reach a misunderstanding. So God is giving the law to, to the Israelites and he's telling them the do's and the don'ts, what they can and can't do and so forth. But do you know that God knew that they were never going to be able to live that law? Do you know that God in giving the law, he was mightily, fully aware that they were never going to be able to fulfill it. That's why Paul says uh, um, that that was the problem and that the purpose of the law uh, was not to bring about justification to an individual. So the Bible says uh, in uh, Romans chapter 3, verse 20, 19 and 20, or 19, it says, um, For by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his presence. So men can somehow be of the misconception, well, you know what, and that's what Paul the Apostle was uh, before he came into contact with Christ. He was a Pharisee. He lived into the strictest, the strictest uh, commandments that were found within the law in order to what? Establish their own righteousness. But the Bible says in James, if you break one law, you're guilty of breaking them all. And so the whole purpose of the law was not so that they could in their own self-effort try and attain to their own righteousness and do everything that God commanded as such because they never could. That's why they would have the sacrificial system each year for the sins that they had committed by the high priest going through that process and the Day of Atonement and making atonement for sin because sin, they were well aware that they were still in a sinful condition. But these things were shadows of what was to come. That's what the Bible tells us until the substance came. And the substance is Christ. And we'll get to that again. But Paul says in Romans 7, he says, is the law sin? Is there something wrong with the law? Nothing's wrong with the law. But the law cannot produce in us. It cannot transfer to us the righteousness of God. It cannot make us partakers of the holiness of God in the most fullness and purest sense when it comes to his nature. That's why God would dwell in a temple. He couldn't dwell in the heart. And not until redemption had been fulfilled and completed that then, uh, and the veil was torn, and then God can now come and live in the heart. 
because there's a holiness that is transferred. And we'll see this as we go along. And so the whole issue of the law must be understood that the Bible says it was a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. The law was not there to try and uh, um, for us to think that we could attain to it. In fact, Paul said, the harder I try, the more I will to do, the more I don't do it. He says, there's this fundamental problem within me. And you know what it is? It's sin. Your sinful nature. Not your sins that you have committed. Okay, that, they're your transgressions. The gospel deals with our transgressions. But now we're talking about this sinful nature that resides in each of us and decides, besides our purest and best efforts, we, can have, we can't nullify the sinful nature in ourselves. doesn't rely on the power of the will. And so the reason why the law's a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ is because it's in Christ that we have salvation. It's in Christ that we have redemption. It's in Christ that we have righteousness. It's in Christ that we have justification. It's in Christ that we have sanctification. And that sanctification is another word for holiness, as we will see. But I'm just touching upon these things. And truth's going to be reiterated throughout this series because you know what? The more we hear it, the more it'll go in. We, we'll get a little glimpse of something and then uh, I'll speak it again when we look at some other scriptures and then the light will come on even more and it will become brighter and more clearer in our understanding, I pray, as we go forward. But you know what? In light of all of what I've just said and having looked at Israel, do you know that what God said to Israel, he said to the church? Listen. In 1 Peter chapter 2, let's go there. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. He says, But you, now he's speaking to, people say, well, it's speaking to Jews. Well, he may be speaking to Jews, but he's speaking to believers. He's speaking to the church. Okay? And he says, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. His own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvellous light. And so here it is now, we as the people of God, having been redeemed, and now in Christ Jesus, the Bible tells us that we are, as the church, as the bride of Christ, we are a chosen generation. A royal priesthood, a holy nation. This is the same language that's being applied to Israel. Not that we replace Israel, but, we, but the Jew and the Gentile have been married together in the purposes of God and a new entity has been born called the church. And we are part of the church which consists of Jews and Gentiles. And this is that entity that Peter's referring to. Go with me to... 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 14, just a few scriptures back. Verse 14, as obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, be holy, for I am holy. See, now this is not like we looked at with Isaiah, that it's a transference of God's holiness. We will establish that. That is foundational. But now we are seeing clear emphasis here in relation to our conduct and the instruction thereof. 
And so it's important that we establish these things as we go forward. And so the New Testament makes the same instruction as the Old. But what is the difference? Is there a difference? There is. The Bible says these words, The law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Because under the law of Moses, they could not attain to the righteousness of God. It was the opposite. All the Lord did was cause sin to abound and expose the sinfulness of man. That's what Paul's arguing in Romans. And so therefore the law came through Moses, but in Christ we have now grace and truth, and they are the components that we need. Amen. The Bible says, Romans 6, verse 14, what does it say? We are not under law, but under grace. We are not under law, but under grace. The law came through Moses, but, the, uh, the, but, uh, uh, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And so we're not under law. The Christian is not bound by that law in the, sense, in the same sense that somehow we have to attain to righteousness. No, we are now under grace. And the power doesn't lie within the will because there's no power in the will to do and to please God and to satisfy the righteousness of God, but Rather, through the grace of God, we are saved. We are, uh, 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 we are declared holy. We are imputed with the righteousness of Christ. And by the grace of God, we are required to live a holy life. And again, I'm going to go into these things. I'm just touching upon them. But it's the grace of God that empowers us to live the life, that empowers us to, to do what he does. And that, that grace is provision, God's power. Because you know what we have that they didn't, the Old, those in the Old Testament didn't have? We have the Holy Spirit. We have the Spirit of God. And the Spirit of God gives us the grace and the truth. And the power, as we'll see, to live victoriously, to walk as God would have us walk. Does that mean that we're perfect? Does that mean we never fail? We don't reach that place and point in holiness until this body is done away with and we are free from the presence of sin. We're going to always struggle and battle with it. But the, the standard doesn't change, church, as we just saw as we looked at these scriptures. Let me read you a quote concerning the law. And we sung it in our song today during the thing. We, we can't fulfill what the law demands. And so uh, it says that these words, The law points away, but it gives no strength to walk in it. The law demands, but it makes no provision for its demands. The law burdens and condemns and slays the sinner. It gives no inward power beyond man has in himself. And you know what we have? Nothing. Not in man. And the law can't give it to us. The law doesn't equip us. In fact, the law uh, uh, is, uh, acts contrary. In fact, it makes us worse. And so we are under grace. And that's why Paul will write in, 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 um, in Romans 6 and he'll say, well, because we're under grace and because grace is super abounding in our lives, that, that gives us a license to sin. 
He says, no, not at all. God's grace is not a cover-up for our sin and disobedience. The grace of God is a provision to live and walk in a manner that is acceptable and worthy and pleasing in his sight. And so no level of self-effort, self-discipline or self-motivation in and of itself is going to accomplish anything. We need the grace of God and we have the Spirit of God to live a life that is pleasing to God. And that's what is going to be the liberating truth. I pray that God will reveal that to us throughout the series. But before we look at that practical aspect and that outward expression of holiness on how it's achieved, we have to look at it first what it is. And as I said to you before, Isaiah, the reason why I chose this text in Isaiah is because it illustrates it in principle for us. You see, before we talk about holiness outwardly, we must deal with it inwardly. And the issue of our sinfulness and our sins must be addressed by God. Must be addressed by God. God can't have sin in his presence. So if he's going to call us to be holy and to be acceptable in his sight, then he's going to have to accomplish something for us that we cannot in and of ourselves. And that's why we, in, in Isaiah's sake, we see the coal and the tongs and the touching of the lips and there's a purging and a cleansing. And so too in the gospel, we're going to see exactly the same thing. We're going to see a transference of the holiness of God unto ourselves. And so we will look more in detail at that next week. But let's pray and conclude this message this morning. Hallelujah. Father, we just bless the name of Jesus. Lord, again, your word is living. Your, your word is powerful. My God, give revelation, Lord, to the hearers. My God, let us see things as they really are. Because let us not fall into the trap, Lord, that we would think that you are like us. You are not. Lord, you are holy, holy, holy. Is the Lord God Almighty. And each of us need a revelation of the holiness of God and the sinfulness of men. We must understand this for ourselves, Lord. And two, we must all at some point be like Isaiah and humble and fall on our knees and say, Woe is me, for I am undone. I am unclean. Because, Lord, it's in that place of brokenness. It's in that place of humility. It's in that place of desperate need, Lord, that you have made provision in the cross of Jesus Christ. And, Lord, I pray you'd bless your people this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless.